This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Lacey. And I'm Ashley. And this is United States of Murder. This week, we're in Hawaii discussing a murder that led to the conviction of three men who may or may not be innocent. Then, we will talk about two cold cases on the Big Island. So buckle up and join us on this dark and twisted ride through the Aloha State. Hawaii. Paradise. Beautiful beaches, ocean waves, and every pineapple-infused alcoholic beverage you can dream of. Located 2,100 miles away from the continental U.S., this magical place is made up of 132 islands. The tragic crime I'm about to tell you about takes place on Opikau, the big island of Hawaii. On Christmas Eve, a 23-year-old young woman takes off on her mountain bike for a short ride to a friend's house. Sadly, she never makes it. This is the story of Dana Ireland. Dana Ireland was born December 12, 1968, in Springfield, Virginia. She was the baby. She had a big sis, Sandra, who was 13 years older. She was a good girl, didn't drink or do drugs. Her mom was a stay-at-home mom, and dad obviously worked. They lived in the same house for 30 years. Sandy moved to Hawaii with her husband right after they got married. So when she moves off... Dana had just started kindergarten. The family would visit several times a year. They would go to Hawaii for like vacations and things. And when Dana graduated from college in 1991, she flew out to her sisters to visit and kind of figure out what she wanted to do. Was she going to go back to like graduate school? Was she going to join the Peace Corps? Like she was just, she's 23. She's trying to figure out life. Right. What better place to do it than your big sisters? Who lives in Hawaii? worst places. Yeah. So their parents came to visit for Christmas and on Christmas Eve the family was at Sandy's after a day of shopping and Dana said she was going to go over to a friend's house and invite him over for Christmas dinner. So she hops on her mountain bike and heads off to her friend Mark Evans house who was about eight miles away. At some point after Dana leaves there's a terrible accident. At the scene was Dana's mangled mountain bike, a ripped watch band, a single white tennis shoe, and a hunk of long blonde hair. Mm. It was clear that someone had veered across the road and deliberately ran her over. Like, she wasn't in the path of the car. They, like, swerved over to hit her. But there was no body. And no trace. Mm. And no... You couldn't tell which direction that the car had went or, and there was no eyewitnesses. Nobody saw anything. Right. Five miles away from where this bike was found, Ida Smith heard someone calling, help me. She followed the sound down a rock path and found Dana's bloody body in some bushes. The inside of her thighs were bruised and she was bleeding. So you could clearly tell she had been raped. The skin on her elbows, shoulders, and arms was torn. She had pebbles and rocks embedded into her skin, and her pelvis was shattered. She had a gash on her head 
so deep that her skull was exposed and she was still bleeding. She had been there for almost an hour when Ida found her. Ida didn't have a phone, so she ran back up to the road to try to flag down a car. So Hazel Allen was driving by. This was about 5.45 p.m., and she said a woman came running out of the, off the side of the road, screaming bloody murder, that a woman had been raped and was in terrible shape and that she needed to go get help. So she calls police, dispatch passes it along to someone else, but it's Christmas Eve and oh, there no. aren't enough resources. There were only about 350 police officers in Hilo, where, which is where this mm-hmm. is, versus 1,900 that were in Oahu at the time. Just trying to give okay, you a little, yeah. like, there was not very mm-hmm. much help. Yeah. So, Jerry Coleman, she was an LPN, and she also went to help Dana. They were at home, her and her husband, and a friend came in and said, there's a girl in the jungle. I guess that's what they call the wood. What we oh would call gosh, the woods. The jungle. There's a girl in the jungle that has been raped. So Jerry rushes out. She tries to treat her for shock by lowering her head and raising her feet. She tries to bandage her wounds and keep her talking. Like, what's your name? Do you know who did this? Where are you from? How old are you? You know, just trying to keep her talking so she doesn't. Yeah. So another call goes to the police. And at 6.07, this was at 6.07, another anonymous call. So now there's like four calls that have been made to the police to dispatch saying a girl's been raped, etc. The closest ambulance should have been around nine miles away, but it had went to the Hilo hospital and the next closest ambulance to where she was, was about 18 miles away. So that's the one they had to dispatch. So a fire truck goes with that ambulance. They were unable to find Dana. Oh my gosh. They were given bad directions by the callers. And at 627, a fire truck and ambulance arrived onto Beach Road, but they were completely lost. They were driving around in circles. They found an abandoned car, thought that was the accident. Couldn't find Dana anywhere. At 635, someone stops and tells them, you're about two miles away from where this girl is. You need to go this way. So a passerby stops and tells them, you know, go back this way. Fire truck calls dispatch because they said, we can't make it down there. This is like a dirt road. We can't get the fire truck down there. It's unpaved. Dispatch tells them, basically, do whatever the fuck you can do because you need to get to her. She is in terrible shape. You would think they could do you that. You would think that I don't know many firemen that would be like, well, you know. In a truck. In a fire truck. Anyways. Huh. So the ambulance gets there. This was an hour after the first oh call. Oh my gosh, that's way too long. Two hours after oh. after the attack. The police were not even there. Police were not even there. So at 7.13, the ambulance finally heads to the hospital. Her parents were cooking dinner when they got word that her crushed bike had been found on the road and they head to the hospital. Several hours later, she was pronounced dead. At 12.25 a.m. on Christmas Day. Cause of death was blood loss. 
due to extensive trauma to her head, pelvis, and abdomen caused by a motor vehicle accident. The parents were told by police that it was a hit and run. Then they heard on the radio that she was murdered. They hear on the radio. Yes. They heard on the radio. Clearly, there was miscommunication on all parts from rescue personnel, police, medical response services. Time was wasted. Oh, yeah. Too much time. And care was stalled. I mean, that... Very unfortunate. But she may have lived. Yeah, she may have. It's... Yeah, it's very... That's tragic. Frustrating when you listen to stories like this. Not blaming anybody, but it's kind of... Well, it's kind of like it's not necessarily one person's fault, but it's everything together. It's just a mess. Well, it's like yesterday when I was on my way to work. I told you about this. Like, I witnessed a car accident where the car hits an embankment, flips Mm -hmm. over, and bursts into flames. Like so scary. It looked like a, a scene from a movie. Yeah. Me and two other cars pull over on the side of the road. I instantly call 911. They run over to the car and I yelled out my window. I'm on the phone with 911 just so I would let someone know that I am calling them. Mm-hmm. Before I hung up the phone, I could hear sirens where the dispatch was, which I know it's a small town-ish. So, and not everyone's that way, but but they were quick to... You see what I'm saying? To dispatch someone to get them to help. Yeah. We just hear too many stories where care is delayed by... I hate that. It's very, yeah, frustrating. And can you imagine how the LPN trying to save her was feeling? She was probably so upset because she was doing what she could, but she needed blood from a hospital. When you are in some situation like that... Like, one minute feels like mm. one hour. So, two hours? That's that's yeah. infuriating. 18 miles. Yeah. Ugh. So, police start investigating. They do know that she was moved five miles away from where she was hit. So, likely and she was transported with a vehicle? She was transported around five miles and at that other location, that's where she was raped and abandoned and beaten. There were no eyewitnesses to the accident, but three witnesses did come forward and claim to have seen a large, dark-skinned man load what appeared to be a human figure into the back oh, no. of a truck. He had a little boy with him, too, around nine. But these people were never found. Mm. Another witness said they saw someone in a tan van. Police followed hundreds of leads and potential suspects, but there was no arrest made. John and Louise, who were Dana's parents, were super frustrated, obviously, because there's nothing happening with their daughter's case. So they hired private investigators. They lobbied politicians in Hawaii and Virginia, where she had grown up. And they worked with a crime victims group in Hawaii and in Virginia. Nothing. An FBI profiler was called in and they said that the perp likely knew her and recognized her on the bike. And that's why they attacked her. Like someone had been almost 
following her, hmm. watching her at night, like very voyeuristic, and yeah. saw her alone and took her out with their car and then kidnapped her, basically, threw her in theirs and then attacked her at the other location. Hmm. But, who knows? Could have just been yeah, could crime have of been opportunity. A crime of opportunity. Which brings us to June 1994, three years later. There's finally an arrest. Frank Pauline Jr., he told police that he had taken part in the attack with 20-year-old Ian and 16-year-old Sean Schweitzer. Frank waived his Miranda rights. He was already in jail for an unrelated crime. He said that one day, Ian and Sean had came to pick him up to go to a party at the beach. They picked him up in a purple VW and headed down Beach Road, which turns into a dirt road. He said it comes out at, and then he stops himself. He said they made several stops to smoke cocaine on the side of the road, and then they drove a little ways and came out at an intersection. He said, we saw a girl standing there, and they decided to turn around and go back and talk to her. Ian wanted to ask her out. He said Ian was driving way too fast, and he kept telling him to slow down. He felt a bump. The car went in reverse, and then he felt another bump. But he couldn't remember the details of a bike. He said he didn't know if she was on a bike or if she was pushing a bike. He didn't know anything as far as her hair or what clothes she had on. He said that both the brothers got out of the car and put her body in the trunk. Then they drove away, making several stops, ending up at one place that had like a lot of junk cars just kind of parked. He said all three of the men got out. Ian asked Frank to grab her body and they put her on the, took her out of the trunk and laid her on the ground. He said she never said anything. She acted like she wasn't even hurt. What? He said then Ian had sex with her. He said, he, I saw it. He said it just lasted a couple seconds and then he wanted me to go in. He said, I refused. I told him I just kind of enjoyed watching. I guess I was just high from the coke. She had blood coming out of her nose, mouth, and eyes at this point. And when I refused to have sex with her, he told me, well, get something and hit her. We have to kill her. She's going to tell on us. Pauline said he found a L-shaped bar, like a tire iron, and hit her over the head with it. He said he felt sick, told Ian he couldn't do it. After that, he said, we all loaded up. We took back roads back to the beach, stopping several more times to smoke cocaine. He said, I didn't realize the body wasn't even with us until we got back to Ian's house and were washing the blood off the car. He said, then we all three took showers, put our clothes in trash bags to get rid of, and went to a Christmas party. So police go to investigate at the house. They found a little bit of evidence they did find the VW bug with a dented bumper. They found a blonde hair in the trunk and a t-shirt with blood on it. Not enough evidence for a conviction, so they just kind of kept looking for more mm-hmm. things. So years pass, and there's not enough for a case against them. So they couldn't get DNA off of that shirt. Well, you got to think this blood. was 1993. Yeah. Well, this is 96 at this point because mm-hmm. it's three years later. They took all this into oh, okay. and were testing mm-hmm. for DNA and all this stuff. But it's, it's, you see this in these cases because of double jeopardy. You 
they want to make sure they, they have right. enough so there's no chance of them getting out or getting They off. didn't have enough. They didn't have much. enough, okay. quote unquote. Yeah. There were bite marks on Dana's breast, <sighs> and they tested that, but they did not match any of the men's dental records. There was semen on and in Dana's body, but the DNA from the semen does not match any of the men either. This semen doesn't match any of the three men. The bite marks on her breasts do not match any of their dental impressions. And they did do DNA testing on the blood that was on the t-shirt. It's not a match to any of the men. I know some people lie about doing stuff, but that's so specific. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. not just like we killed this lady. Yeah. He had all these details. Yeah. And the bumper. So did they, they talk to the other guys? And they, of course, said, no, we didn't do it. We had nothing to do with it. They run the DNA through CODIS, and there's no match in, in the system to this person's DNA, whoever this person was. Was there only, could they tell that there was semen just from one person? Could they? Yeah, it was so one, one person. person semen. Okay. The semen and the blood were the same person. Okay. So, Frank recants his story over time, but it doesn't matter because all three men are arrested in July of 1999. Frank is on trial for Dana's rape, murder, and is found guilty. He's sentenced to life in prison. The next year, February of 2000, Ian is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Sean, who was 16 at the time of the crime, cuts a plea deal and gets five years probation. In 2015, Frank is killed in prison when another inmate slams him in the head with a rock. Ugh. Ian is still in prison. Ian's the one that initially confessed. No, that was Frank. Okay. Ian Frank. and Sean okay. were the brothers. Okay, got it. Frank implicated those two. Said these two guys came and picked me up to go to this party, and then all this shit happened. Did he explain, so if he recanted the statement... Why did he, he ever say, go to them and tell them that? He he wanted to help his half-brother, who was also in jail. He was in jail, so he thought it would help them out if he confessed, like, cut a plea deal. Like, I'll tell you this if you do X, Y, and Z. Huh. So the Innocence Project gets involved in 2019. They file a motion to look into Dana's murder case. They base this on ineffective counsel No DNA and new evidence. They said the last person to see Dana alive was the friend that she went over to his house, the Mark guy. When she was riding her bike to her friend's house. Did they ever test his DNA? I'm sure. Hmm. I didn't find anything about that because that was a good question, but I'm sure they followed all these hundreds of leads and investigated everyone close to her. Police exclusively searched for the two types of vehicles described by the witnesses, the van and the truck. In the spring of 1994, Frank and his half-brother started bartering. In, they were, that's when he was in jail. Mm-hmm. So that's when he starts talking to police and giving these testimonies to get out of jail early. They were both incarcerated. He was in jail for rape at the time. 
and his half-brother was in jail for drugs. So that's when he told them that the brothers had been involved. Ian and Sean had been involved. He was involved. So he's basically just spinning a web, hmm. trying to figure out a way to help himself and his half-brother, which makes no sense to me. Yeah, me either. So they actually lived across the street from the brothers, and that's how they knew them. And there had been a lot of animosity, I guess, between the parents, and they were boys who would get along and fight, and they weren't along, weren't getting along, and blah, blah, blah. So anyways, so at first the cops didn't believe his confession because it was too inconsistent, but as soon as he was telling them things, he started getting benefits, extra phone calls, Ugh. preferred housing, and special visitations by his girlfriend. So he just kept talking and making up, quote unquote, making up more and more things. Hmm. So the FBI definitively excluded Sean, Ian, and Frank in December of 98 because there was no DNA. Yeah. So there's nothing. The DNA doesn't match. There's DNA does not match. There's no fingerprints that match. There's no blood, semen. There's nothing. There's no murder weapon with blood on it. There's everything circumstantial. Despite this, obviously, they went to prison. And another thing that's very interesting that the Innocence Project brought up was the VW bug that he says they were in. They didn't even own it at the time of the crime. Whose was it? It was Ian's, but it wasn't purchased until two months after. So the crime took place in December. He had papers and everything saying, do you see this bill of sale? So he did not have that? No, I bought it in February. And he had papers to prove that? Yes. So how did I put her in this car and transport her body and all these things that you're saying that I did when I didn't own the car. Well, what about the blood in the car? There was no blood the in t- the car. There the was t-shirt. a t-shirt that had blood on it that was found. It wasn't found at their house. It was found with Dana. Oh, yes. it wasn't in it the wasn't car. It wasn't in the car. Okay. Hmm. No. So there was blonde hair, which I never found anything that said it was, in fact, hers. And a dent in this car. But that was their evidence. And his confession. Mm -hmm. I mean, the confession sealed Sealed the deal. deal. It was, it's very reminiscent of the West Memphis Three. Yeah. You know, there's no evidence. when someone confesses to something, you can't just And something so whatever. Yeah. I mean. Like, who's going to confess to that? Yeah. You can't just blow that off. Right. You have to take it into some degree of consideration. So we all know that Frank died in prison. Yeah. Sean is, was on probation. Now he's not. But Ian is the only one still in prison and the Innocence Project in Hawaii is trying to get him a new trial and get him free because they feel like he has been completely falsely accused and had nothing to do with this. They want to use the same type of genetic testing used to catch the Golden State Killer. Oh, okay. To try to see who this yeah. DNA, who the semen, who the blood, who all this They have shit so much DNA. Belong, who does this belong to? So they, they're trying to use the same genetic testing used in the Golden State, you know, when the Golden State Killer was found 
to exonerate Ian and find the real killer. Like, just because all these years go by doesn't mean that justice shouldn't No, I agree. And if he didn't do it, then he didn't do it. That's... So, there is also another group working hard to find justice for Dana and free the last remaining man they believe was wrongfully accused. And this is a non-profit called Judges for Justice. Have you ever heard of them? Uh Uh-uh. So, they're made up of retired Judge uh, Michael Heavey. He was a Washington State Superior Court Judge. Retired Judge Peter Deegan of Michigan and retired Judge Jay White, who is also Washington State Superior Court Judge, and Beverly Brooks, who is a criminal de- criminal defense attorney in Washington State. Hmm. So they take the case up and they suggest that, obviously, the three men convicted are not the killers. They have a 14-part documentary that I've watched entitled hmm. Murder in Hawaii. Where they go over all the facts of the crime, examine key evidence, and explain how the killer, the one whose DNA is found on everything, could still be captured. Like, it's not lost. We could still get the guy. Right. What? Where did you watch this? So, you can watch this for free at judgesforjustice.org. And each one of the... I'm going to bookmark that right now. Each one of the episodes is about 30 minutes long. Okay. So it kind of dives in deep to how the tires that were on the VW could not have made the marks on the road and how there's, you know, the lack of DNA and how the t-shirt that was tested in 2007 with touch DNA wasn't any one of the guys in prison, obviously. Mm-hmm. They, go, they go over the FBI profile where they say the killer probably lived near Dana and the killer knew her. And she knew him and how he probably roamed around spying on her. Like he was very voyeuristic and, you know, they set up the whole, I I think it's fascinating when the FBI does profiles on people and how close they get from little things to finding the whole personality of the person. That is very intriguing to me. They have also put up a $10,000 reward to whoever can provide evidence to identify her killer. Wow. I'm they, looking at it. It's pretty interesting. Right now. They have also been at odds with the Innocent Project. Like, the Innocent Project does they, not want them involved. Why? They have been asked to stop interfering with the matter because their They're actions. They're not working in tandem together? No. What? Because they say their actions threaten Ian's case. They have filed complaints against them with Washington State Office of Disciplinary Counsel. What? Along with Hawaii's Attorney General. They think that they're trying to cash in on Ian's case. The Innocence Project does. Oh. And they think that they have okay. publicized Like they're trying to make money off of it, perhaps? Not well, they're doing it for free. They're non-profit. Oh, they're not okay. charging anybody. They're just trying to help yeah. him. But they think, the Innocence Project thinks that... You know, they're they're releasing kind of information about the case that they shouldn't on social media and that his theories are not in line with the one that they have. Okay. So the judges for justice theories about what happened are completely different with what the Innocence really? Project thinks happened and what Ian's legal team thinks happened. Hmm. And that 
the tactics that he's using to gain attention are doing more harm than good in the public opinion of, you know, Ian. Yeah. Basically, he's just a Budinsky and needs to focus on somebody else. They're like, we've got this. Just okay. stay out of it. So. Too many cooks in the too kitchen. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Hmm. So, that's the case. Dana Arland. Gosh. Still ongoing. There still could possibly, they may not have done this. They may be innocent. They may not be. Yeah. Whoever did it needs to be found and charged. Mm-hmm. And But, yeah. It's pretty messed up. I foolishly thought if they had all the things with DNA and it doesn't match and the people are going, it's not me. I mean, is that not enough for a mistrial? I would think so. Or enough to raise reasonable doubt. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how that food works. Food for thought. That is strange. The dental impressions. It would be one thing if maybe one thing mm-hmm. didn't align. Right. But the dental impressions didn't match. The semen didn't match. The blood didn't match. Not just one individual, but all three. It doesn't match any of them. That is very strange. This is one we're going to have to follow. And they're still actively... Yes, this is going on right now. Wow. Yeah. The Innocence Project is working to get him exonerated. Hmm. I'm going to have to watch this documentary. It's a a whole rabbit hole. Oh, I believe it. You'll be up. Just forget karaoke and (laughs) trivia tonight. Just watch this. Watch this. Oh, my. 14-part documentary we'll link this up to in our show notes if anyone wants to check it out it's really good it's i've never heard of this case so i'm definitely interested my case takes place in hilo hawaii which is where yours was yes so i've never been to hawaii but would love to i know you're not a beach person no oh i don't like hot oh my god i don't like hot either but i love it's different when you can swim and do you under- swim, though, in the ocean? Did we not talk yes. about this last night? Yeah, I do. You're not scared of sharks? Oh, I am. But I'm cautious. No, thanks. So Hilo is on what's known as the Big Island in Hawaii. In the 2010 census, the population was 43,263. Much of Hilo is at risk from lava flows. Nope. Don't from like that. Mauna Loa. With the bayfront being twice destroyed by tsunamis. I think I'm going to complain a little less about the weather now. That This is the literal danger zone. Could you imagine fearing volcanoes and and tsunamis and sharks? We do have Hawaii listeners. Hi. And it looks like 20% of them, those listeners, are from Hilo. Which is interesting. So please don't cringe too hard at my pronunciations. <laughs> Every one of them are going to write I swear. In. We Googled it and we played the audio beforehand, but... We're from Arkansas. All these vowels. Which we're trying. But anyway, let's get into it. On November 2nd, 2003, a little after 9 a.m., a hunter was searching for a missing dog in a remote area. Don't like this. You know where the, it's always hunters and hikers. Instead of the dog, he found a human body near the 12-mile marker on Saddle Road. So this body was that of a male who looked to be in his mid-40s. He'd been badly beaten, and his body was in a severe state of decomposition. So he'd been there a minute. Yeah, and it was apparent that it was a secondary scene. There 
wasn't blood all over the place, just, He'd been dumped. Right. So he was murdered elsewhere, then dropped off on Saddle Road. Well, an autopsy revealed that this man died from blunt force trauma, and they ruled his death a homicide. The fingerprints were ran through the statewide database, but nothing came up. He had no ID on him. No one came forward saying they were missing someone or that someone was gone. So this victim was dubbed John Doe, and the case went cold. You know, since they didn't have a name, they didn't have a direction to go in, no evidence was left at the scene. No tattoos or birthmarks. Well, and what they knew of him, they put on the news, and no one came forward. No dental records. They couldn't find anything. I know. Well, in 2016, investigators had a breakthrough. Detective Derek Morimoto was assigned to this John Doe's case. He discovered that the Criminal Justice Center in Honolulu was using new technology from the FBI called Next Generation Identification. And this is something I feel like we'd see on an episode of Forensic Files, but Next Generation Identification is a database that can identify people through facial recognition, fingerprints, palm prints, or the iris of a person's eye. That facial recognition stuff it's is really amazing. You know, it Max really went is. to camp and they would take photos throughout the day and night and they use facial recognition technology. And if Max's face was in any of the pictures, it would email that photo to us. Wow. Just from their facial recognition technology. That's wild. Kind of scary. Yeah. It kind of is. I mean, it's a it's, it's a technology and a curse, smart. <laughs> yeah, know, for sure. Wow. Well, this guy they sent in this man's fingerprints, and there was a match. The fingerprints belonged to a forty-seven-year-old man named Bradley Busowitz. He also went by the name of Bradley Adair. So Bradley was described as a six-foot-one man with a slim build. He was wearing a green Aloha print shirt and a pair of brown swim trunks when he was found. Bradley was known to be a resident of the Hawaii Island and was also believed to have previously lived on Maui. Investigators were able to locate his sister, Pam Eklund, and she lived on the mainland in Wisconsin. She said her brother had a nomadic lifestyle. Bradley was born in Wisconsin and from 1988 to 1989, he lived on the Big Island, but previously he lived in California. Bradley moved to Maui in May of 2003 before returning to the Big Island, and he lived at various locations there. Pam said that he would send the family letters, but most of the time there was not a return address, so they couldn't really stay in touch with him. He could write them, right? but there wasn't a back-and-forth correspondence, and she said it was not unusual for them to go several years without hearing from him. That's, no. It's just a nomad. I can imagine going... Years without hearing from my sibling. But because of this, she said it wasn't that unusual, you know, to go a while without hearing from him. But she said after a while, it did seem like too long. She tried to find him, but was never successful. She said that just two years prior, in 2014, she started looking through death records in Hawaii looking for his name. Because she thought, surely surely by now he would have contacted me. But she was relieved because she never found his name. And they just were like, you know, he's a nomad. He's kind of reminds me of Into the Wild. It kind of reminds me of Into the Wild, but instead of Alaska, the Hawaii version. But 
Pam said Bradley loved music and even played the didgeridoo. That's such a fun word to say. It is. It's a cool instrument. I've seen people play it. You have? Yeah, in Asheville, North Carolina. Pam said that he was a poet, a pacifist, and a vegetarian. He loved the earth, and his dream was to own a small piece of land in Hawaii and to be able to grow his own food and to be self-sufficient. But still, there's a question, who murdered Bradley? To this day, we do not know. So I could not find any podcasts about this case, and I'm suspecting because there's not really a whole lot of info on it. But, you know, I am I feel like it needs to be spread out there, and you never know who's listening. But his family, of course, still wants answers on what happened to him. Of course. And, of course, a murderer still out there. Someone beat him to death, drove him to a secondary location, and dumped him. Mm-mm. But, of course, his family doesn't know where he was living, who he was friends with, who his community was. No one, it's a mystery. They don't know who his friend circle was. And no one came forward in Hawaii to say they even knew him. Just so strange that you can almost be anonymous, you know, in in your own community. Right. Well, his sister said that she knows he had an early model Chevy Lumina van at one point, and he also had a bicycle. If anyone has any information that can help Hawaii Island Police, email unsolvedhomicides at hawaiicounty.gov. And anonymous calls can be made to Crime Stoppers at 961-8300. And I'll put the email up in our show notes. Since there wasn't a lot of information around about this case, it was pretty short. So I have a quick other unsolved case to talk about. And this is also in Hilo. Two cases? Well, this is this is quick, but when there's a short case and there's not really much to make an episode on, you no, know what I'm I mean? here for two it's cases. Kind of a, it's kind of sad that there's not information enough information for people's story to be told. You know what I mean? I don't know. So on May 1st, 1987, at about 9.15 p.m., 25-year-old Lynn Ebisuzaki walked out of her boyfriend's home in the 500 block of Kanawehilua Avenue in South Hilo. That was a street name that you were trying to pronounce? Yes. I'm sorry, Hawaiians. Investigators eventually found her body in the bushes a few hundred feet away from her boyfriend's home. The autopsy showed that she died from a single stab wound and her death was ruled a homicide. So from what I read early on, the boyfriend looked like a potential suspect, but they never found any evidence supporting that he murdered her. So the same detective I talked about in my previous case in Bradley's case, Detective Derek Morimoto took this case over in 2017. Hmm. So he said back in the 80s, a lot of people on the Big Island didn't lock their homes, which honestly isn't that unusual for the rest of the U.S. in the 80s. He said that she was likely either taken out of her home or forcefully removed, so she was not murdered inside that house. Gotcha. So he kind of was alluding that If it was the boyfriend, you would think he would have killed her inside, but there's not really much to go on. But Lynn was 26 years old and had a steady job in the business office at Miko Meats. She had no known enemies, and people in her life spoke very highly of her. She was not involved in any illegal activities or anything, and when she wasn't working, she spent most of her free time as a youth leader for Cannoli Baptist Church in Hilo. As of this year... Hawaii Island Police are renewing public interest in this 34-year-old cold case in hopes to finally solve it. 
Anyone with information about Lynn's murder is asked to contact Detective Derek Morimoto at 961-2380 or Derek.Morimoto at HawaiiCounty.gov, and I'll put all this information up. But pretty much all of my sources are from the local news outlets in Hawaii. Lynn's case is super short, too, because there's so much limited information about it. There really isn't even much to speculate on. And we post photos to our Instagram and Facebook every Monday to kind of go along with our cases. So be sure to take a look at these. Show your parents or friends, especially to our Hawaiian listeners, because you never know who might recognize someone. I feel like that's not necessarily the easiest, but to solve cold cases, it takes someone recognizing Mm -hmm. someone or someone remembering something. There's got to be somebody knows something. Oh, for sure. Somebody always knows something. Yeah. And it's usually difficult for murderers to stay quiet. No, they want to brag about it. Mm -hmm. So there's some unsolved cases for you. So I forgot where we are next week. I think it's Iowa. Do you have your notes handy? Don't. I think it's Iowa. I think it's Iowa, too. It, it is now. It is now. <laughs> it's, we're in Iowa we're next in week. We're in Iowa. Again, thanks, LaDonna, for all An- your continued drink. drinks. We love it. It's hot. We're melting. Oh, my gosh. It's I tried really to get good. Lacey to make us Mai Tais. Yeah. She did not. I thought, I thought it was a good idea, but it's just. She didn't have it in her. I didn't have it in me. I'll buy one somewhere. How's that? I'll yes. buy a Mai Tai. We will buy a Mai Tai. Right now we're just having hard seltzers. Yes, per usual. So follow us along on Instagram at United States of Murder and on Facebook and Twitter at US of M Podcast. Go to our website, UnitedStatesOfMurder.com. That's the easiest way. We have all of our socials. You can find merch. our Patreon. You can find our merch. Yes. You can find whatever you want. If you like us, leave us a review on Apple. That really helps us in the algorithms. And on our Instagrams where we post all of our pictures. Yeah, check that out. We we always post stuff. Until next week. How do you say bye in Hawaiian? Aloha. Simple enough. Yeah. Aloha. Aloha.